to the Cover 2 PPT podcast series, a podcast series about people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction. We were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, host of the Cover 2 podcast series. Last month, I sat down with Dr. Ted Buckley, who is the head of government affairs and advocacy at Rayburn in Washington, D.C. We began comparing notes on our observations about the impact of COVID-19 on the opioid epidemic. The more we talked, the more we realized how much had changed in the world of those struggling with opioid use disorder, and at the same time, how quickly guidelines and longstanding policies adapted in response to the pandemic. Over the last four years, I've been immersed in researching and telling the stories about the opioid crisis and the people, places, and things making a difference. We invited some of those experts in to talk with us today. So today, I'm going to introduce an expert from healthcare, from journalism, and the recovery community to share their insights on the impact of the coronavirus on the opioid epidemic. And that really is what led us into and led us up to this event, this live event. So we'd like to welcome you. Over the last 90 plus days, much has changed in our world. COVID-19 ushered in sheltering in place and social distancing. And we began to experience shortage of things like hand sanitizer and even toilet paper. So while for many of us, we had to endure some slight hardships and inconveniences, the brunt of the pandemic has been felt by our most vulnerable population. And those struggling with opioid use disorder have been particularly hard hit. This afternoon, we'll examine the impact of the coronavirus on the opioid epidemic with my guests, starting with the co-director of the Opioid Policy Research at Brandeis University, Dr. Andrew Kolodny. Dr. Kolodny is one of the nation's leading experts on the prescription opioid and heroin crisis. He began his career working for the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene, where he developed multiple programs to improve the health of New Yorkers and save lives, including the first citywide buprenorphine program and a naloxone overdose prevention program. So Dr. Kolodny, welcome. Next up, we have the New York Times editorial writer and best-selling author, Beth Macy. Beth's book, Dope Sick, profiles how a group of determined community leaders and activists in Virginia tried to head off the opioid epidemic's emergence in the late 90s before it spread to the rest of the country. In June, Hulu began production on an eight-episode series based on Dope Sick. So Beth, welcome. And finally, the former Clinton White House aide, Ryan Hampton. In August of 2018, Ryan published his first book, American Fix, Inside the Opioid Addiction Crisis and How to End It. In American Fix, Ryan gives his candid account of his personal struggles with heroin addiction and his experiences with what he calls a broken treatment system. And finally, he outlines a political agenda for combating the nation's addiction crisis. 
As we begin, I ask each of our guests today to comment on the impact of the pandemic on the opioid crisis from their perspectives, beginning with things that make addressing opioid use disorder so difficult while we're battling COVID-19. So Dr. Kolodny, could you kick us off here? Yeah, so that's uh, a, a terrific question. And unfortunately, we don't have really good information um, to answer it. In, in other words, um, it's unclear whether or not the COVID pandemic is making the opioid crisis worse. There's, and there are anecdotes that overdose deaths have gone up in different parts of the country, um, but it's unclear what's happening um, in every state. Um, states are just now beginning to release overdose death data for January, February, and March. Of course, March is, is the beginning of the COVID crisis. Some states have found that deaths have gone up in that period. Others have found that deaths came down a little bit. It's still really too early to tell. And, and I think one of the reasons that we can't answer this question about how COVID is impacting the opioid crisis is because for the opioid crisis, we, we do not have good public health surveillance. Um, we have to wait months and even years before we get the overdose death data. In fact, the, the most current data from CDC on overdose deaths in 2018, the 2019 data is still provisional. If you look at what, what we hear every day with the COVID crisis, we get the number of new cases of COVID, we get hospitalization data, we get death data, but much about the opioid crisis, we're, we're still in the dark. So to really answer your question, I guess the real answer to your question is we don't know, but anecdotes suggest that COVID is making the opioid crisis worse. We do know that for people who suffer with OUD, they are at increased risk of contracting COVID. They're, for, for a variety of reasons, there are biological reasons that they have an increased risk because chronic opioid use can suppress your immune system. And this is true for pain patients on opioids chronically as well. If, you, if you're using opioids chronically, your body doesn't fight infections as well. So that may put you at increased risk of contracting COVID or even getting a more severe case. There are also psychosocial circumstances for people with OUD that may increase the risk that they would contract COVID. For example, People with OUD may be in treatment settings, detox units, rehabs, where it's very difficult to social distance. And of course, we, we know that people with OUD, a disproportionate number of people with OUD suffer from homelessness, which also is an increased risk for, for contracting uh, COVID. So there are lots of reasons to believe that COVID may be having a very negative impact on people with OUD, making the opioid crisis worse, but a lot is still not known. I asked Beth Macy what she'd seen impact recovery in the era of COVID-19. So the big picture for me and from the folks I've been talking to on the ground or is that uh, the opioid crisis uh, had already exposed fissures in our society, especially I'm talking about the uneven access to health care and to SUD and mental health. It was, in effect, America's true canary in the coal mine. Uh, a harbinger of uh, our, our worst sickness, which I believe is inequality. Um, 
so so what does addiction uh, in the era of COVID look like on the ground? And here's just some broad brush strokes uh, I wanted to point out. Um, I think we are getting better access to telehealth and you're seeing MAT intakes um, done over the phone now, something we long knew would help, uh, but just couldn't make happen. Um, but it took a pandemic to loosen up these Byzantine restrictions that we had around it. Uh, what, and as one of my sources said, what it took was a threat to the police and to the workers in the clinics to give the people who use drugs the help they were asking for all along. So that's seen as uh, you know, mostly a positive thing. Uh, the loosening of those SAMHSA restrictions. But in distressed communities like the ones I report on most often, uh, a lot of folks don't have internet access to do Zoom therapy. Um, and in those communities and in larger communities too, we've see, we're seeing what I'm hearing, uh, as Andrew said, the data isn't quite in yet, but huge increases, not just in overdose deaths, but in deaths of despair. In one rural community I've been reporting on within uh, an increase in unemployment uh, of 10%, if the trajectory holds true uh, for the first four months of 2020, uh, they're looking at a seven to 11% increase in deaths of despair, alcohol and drug overdose deaths and suicide. In my home city of Roanoke, Virginia, overdose deaths have tripled, uh, especially polysubstance use, in the first four months of the year compared to the same period last year. I know, Greg, you've seen different things, but that's, that's what I'm told. In Dayton, Ohio, another area that I'm reporting from, mental health calls have gone up 80 to 90%. Um, a, a worker in a rural North Carolina said, what we have now is a pandemic within a pandemic, and he's predicting, uh, or he's, he's read predictions of an additional 75,000 deaths caused by suicide suicide, alcohol, and drug overdoses nationally this year. Uh, We're seeing more humane treatment of drug users on MAT. Uh, I'm hearing anecdotally that when there's a positive drug screen, uh, folks aren't being kicked out in some areas for the first time. That's good. Uh, But on the negative side, I'm also hearing from providers uh, the decreased accountability when counselors and doctors can't see patients and can't do drug screens is a problem for some patients. Um, And I just want to shout out all the folks in the trenches. Lastly, uh, as Sherry told me, she said, we are so overworked. I feel like a tidal wave is crashing down on us. Next, Ryan Hampton shares his perspective on the impact of COVID-19 on the recovery community. I think that there's a a little bit of a disconnect. Uh, We don't know yet the data, right? Because we don't have the data. But I think on a practical level, all signs are that this is probably our worst nightmare. Um, I mean, every single determinant, um, whether it be isolation, uh, inability to access services, evictions, unemployment, um, denial of care from hospitals, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll get a little bit more into the stories in a second. Uh, are coming out. Um, like Beth said, you know, there, there is a study out there. I believe it's from Hopkins. You know, there's a, a prediction that overdose deaths, alcohol deaths, suicide deaths uh, could skyrocket and go past 75,000. Uh, I know here in my hometown here in Clark County, Nevada, we've seen a severe increase 
uh, in overdose deaths. Uh, I know, and we, we had a town hall the other night in Madison, they're seeing the largest increase since pre-2016 uh, that they've had uh, in their hometown. Um, but we keep, you know, we keep addressing this, right, in terms of just an opioid scope. So some of the federal legislation that we're seeing proposed, I know there was a bill uh, that's going out today that is a very good bill. Uh, a lot of the federal dollars that are currently available are tagged specifically and only uh, for opioid treatment or opioid use disorder when the fact actually is that now more people, particularly in the Western states, are dying of methamphetamine uh, overdoses, right? Uh, we saw a skyrocket in alcohol use. I think alcohol consumption is up 50% as of last month. Um, you know, we talk about things, you know, state by state, it's different, but we have here in the state of Nevada, we've got a moratorium on housing evictions, right? Well, people who are in early recovery rely on recovery housing, but guess what? Those house that moratorium on housing eviction uh, does not cover people who are in recovery residences. And we're seeing this state by state because of the lack of regulation, the lack of inclusion, the lack of recognition of what a recovery house is. Um, we are, you know, I, uh, last week I, I was able to attend for the first time, look, I'm five years into my recovery journey and this has been very tough for me. While Zoom is great, telehealth is essential. It's not an either or situation. We have to provide that safe space for people to be able to connect. And last Friday I had my, the first meeting I was able to have, uh, in a recovery community, uh, center for an in-person recovery meeting. Uh, we were not deemed as essential services. Uh, some states were starting to see some of that changing. And there were six of us in that meeting. And there was a woman who had walked in. And at the end of the meeting, when it was time to share, you know, everybody was going around and, and, and really kind of just unloading what's been going on the last couple of months. She said, you know, I um, have been driving by this building every single day and the lights were off. And she says, and I, I got in my car, actually headed to the other side of town today to go hang out with people. And she was, she was uh, 60 days in recovery from, from heroin. So I got in my car to head over to see some people I haven't seen in a long time. Let your you know, mind take you where that probably was, right? Right off of the strip. And she says, and I drove by here and I saw cars in the parking lot. And I ran in and you all were here. And she says, I'm so grateful you were here because I don't know what I would do without this. We had phone calls with several health district officials, local, you know, on the county level, talking about the increased need for addiction supports and mental health supports and what we could do. And I'm telling you this from first person experience in the last six weeks, I was told if this wasn't COVID related, they did not have the capacity to deal with it. We're frustrated as a community. I think that there's no doubt in my mind that we're going to see a massive uptick in suicide, overdose from alcohol, overdose from opioids, overdose from other stimulants. As it turns out, Ryan's instincts were right on the mark. Today, an article in STAT cited a jump in overdoses of 18% nationally in March and 29% in April, followed by 42% in May. What's equally frustrating, though, is that we can see what states and the federal government can do when they marshal all their resources to deal with a public health crisis. They call addiction and opioid 
opioids, a public health crisis. But let me tell you how you deal with a public health crisis. What they've been doing with coronavirus, we saw the federal government literally print overnight $2 trillion worth of funding that went out to businesses for economic stim, uh, you know, uh, stimulating the economy. We learned this morning that $1.3 billion of money, of stimulus money, went to people who aren't even alive today. $1.3 billion is more than recovery support organizations have received in funding ever, went to dead people. And we are still begging to have money to keep our doors open. So our community is frustrated. We recognize we are now in the midst of dueling public health crises. But like Beth said earlier in, in, in her opening, the largest thing we have to deal with is stigma, right? Some people call it stigma. I call it prejudice. I call it discrimination. You know, we call it a public health crisis, but we are very bottom on the rung. And until we're seen as equal and deserving of the supports that we need to stay alive, uh, nothing's going to change. So um, sadly, I think um, in the next six months, when we start looking at the data, the data will probably support what I just said. Uh, and I believe that, you know, given what's happening with COVID, we have got to start addressing this as much broader than just an opioid crisis, because we have an addiction and mental health crisis in this country uh, that is killing people at just an astronomical rate. Um, and, and, and hopefully, uh, policymakers will wake up and realize that and start listening to people in the recovery community, as opposed to throwing money, uh, you know, towards things that we have been putting money into for a long time. Very, very, you know, the things that are getting funded need to be funded. Nobody's saying take funding away from that. We're saying add on to that. Look at the social determinants of health. Look at the things that get people into long-term recovery and sustain their recovery and listen to us. Um, and it's been very frustrating. In May, SAMHSA issued revised guidelines for safe naloxone use for first responders after learning about their reluctance of law enforcement and EMS to carry naloxone during COVID-19. Since they're putting themselves at risk, why should anybody, uh, why should a healthcare provider or first responder have to rescue that individual or take on risk um, saving someone who was using drugs um, for, for pleasure? Um, that may be the what they have in their mind, and you know, it, to me, it it suggests a, a very serious misunderstanding about opioid use disorder. Uh, people who are addicted to opioids, what drives their continued use is not that injecting drugs is so much fun. What drives continued use once somebody has become addicted? is that without that drug, that individual feels absolutely awful. Uh, people with opioid use disorder, we know, um, are suffering from a disease and need treatment. And uh, the idea that uh, these are addicts who are out there just having a good time using drugs, and therefore, why should anybody put themselves at risk to rescue them, um, is it, just a, a total misunderstanding. And it's why it's important really to keep working on stigma. Next, we talk about the rapid policy changes during the coronavirus that have helped those in recovery, beginning with telehealth. It's a some gain, I think, uh, but there's still a lot of folks that uh, don't have internet at home and so don't have access to Zoom therapy. Uh, most people have phone or an access to a phone, and the fact that uh, 
uh, oh, we call them OBOTs here, outpatient uh, opioid treatment centers that uh, do buprenorphine, um, will actually do an intake over the phone now. I mean, that's a huge uh, plus um, for, for people in rural areas who can't afford the gas money to drive in, uh, don't have access uh, to, to a clinic. Um, one person I know is um, they're doing uh, only, the only in-person thing they're doing is drug tests and they're sending them to, you know, with a mask and all that to um, a, a, a lab. And that's it. Everything else is done via uh, the phone or the internet. And for those who don't have uh, the internet, um, and this is this is a probation office that's handling this in Ripley County, Indiana. They're uh, setting up hotspots outside of the courthouse so that people can come and do their counseling, which is pretty cool. But they've had uh, just triple the number of overdoses just in the first four months uh, this year that they had had uh, in the previous two years. So um, I totally agree with what, what, what Ryan is hearing that um, most areas, are, most of the distressed areas in particular are really struggling. And um, I think lacking federal leadership, we really need local and state health departments and employment commissions to step up. Um, we need more policies to provide meaningful work. You know, people, when, I know when I don't have work, I'm pretty depressed and we need meaningful work to assuage that and the unemployment. Um, why aren't we doing kind of a Marshall plan for COVID? Like for example, hiring people to do contact, contact tracing or like a community health service court. Um, we know from the gains that we have made that it, it takes the most of the change that's taking place is happening at the local and state level. So we need, we need to keep fighting for that. Next, we pivot to take-home medications for MAT. I mean, I'd like to say that I think that, you know, all of these changes that we're seeing are incredibly welcome, right? And it did take coronavirus, it did take COVID to realize that, look, we do need to be able to let people take their medication home. I would go as far to say that, you know, buprenorphine, methadone, uh, you know, opioid addiction treatment drugs should be, you know, prescribed widely. They should be prescribed in the emergency room. They should be prescribed day one. I think there's still a lot of barriers uh, to people being able to access those life-saving medications uh, when they need. But the, the fact still also remains, though, that if I believe that if, if, if you know, op you know, just, you know, closing the gaps in those systems and those barriers would be like the silver bullet and the fix all, like we wouldn't see this massive uptick in overdoses, right? Like we have to start looking at this in a holistic approach. Um, you know, you had mentioned, you had, you had mentioned uh, the naloxone piece earlier, and I just want to revert back to that for a second, because we also need to realize that in order for people to start treatment, we have to keep them alive to get to treatment, right? Uh, naloxone is, is a very important tool. And in my opinion, I have very strong opinions for law enforcement that will not carry or administer naloxone. They don't deserve a spot in public safety in our public safety system. Um, I, I, I just have zero tolerance for it. But we talk about first responders. Um, to be honest with you, the first responder on an overdose 
maybe in the technical term is a, a medic or uh, you know someone arriving in, a, in an ambulance or a police officer, but it's actually me. It's my friends because we're usually in the house with someone who has overdosed and died. I can't tell you how many times I have been present or administered naloxone. We need to be getting naloxone as important as it is on the public safety side and law enforcement. We need to be getting naloxone to drug users. We need to be getting it into recovery housing. We need to be getting it into places where people are who are using drugs, right? That's where the massive investment needs to be such in harm reduction groups. You know, people who provide those services, provide fentanyl testing strips, provide clean syringes. Today, Wednesday, I'm sorry, yesterday on Wednesday, there was a bill dropped, the first major significant increase in harm reduction. Uh, either it was being dropped yesterday or today by Senator Tina Smith from uh, Minnesota that puts $50 million of COVID response towards these groups specifically. That is a critical, critical piece that gets overlooked constantly. But back to your question on addiction treatment drugs, of course, like I don't think anybody would argue that though, that that is a good move, but it's also not the only fix, right? We have to start looking at this holistically in terms of that first five years. The Surgeon General's report from 2016, Facing Addiction in America, um, which was the first Surgeon General's report on alcohol, drugs, and health, very clearly stated in it that if we can get someone past five years in their recovery, they have an 85% chance at sustaining that recovery for the rest of their life. Yet we're still dealing with this as an acute crisis, right? We call it a chronic health care condition, but a lot of the solutions and a lot of the funding goes towards just treating it in that acute setting. So I, I, I mean, I would go further than, than, than some of the, the rule changes that we've had. I think that methadone and buprenorphine uh, should be more widely available take home, absolutely. But every single emergency room in this country should be able to prescribe it immediately and then provide them with the recovery support services that they need. And that's happening in uh, many hospitals through warm handoff programs. That's where federal investment needs to go. And Beth is absolutely right. You know, we could have $20 billion a year coming out of the federal government, but if states and municipalities aren't putting that money in the right place, then I don't know what it's for. Dr. Kolodny weighed in on the pros and cons of deregulating methadone. With methadone maintenance, I think the jury is still out. Um, So what we have seen is some deregulation of of methadone maintenance, making it easier for patients to take home methadone, a 28-day supply or a 14-day supply. I think that those temporary changes are reasonable, and I'm glad that that we're doing this. However, we, it's unclear whether or not this will have um, overall been something we would want to keep in place post-COVID because methadone is a drug that's especially easy for people to overdose on. So one of the things that's happening right now is really a natural experiment. And what we'll need to do is study the impact of deregulating opioid addiction treatment with these medications to see where it worked well, where it didn't work. We might find that overdose deaths involving methadone went up in the context of of the deregulation. We just don't know. It um, it may have been a good thing. It's it's unclear. Um, I think there's a lot we can learn from COVID and there are a lot of changes that we could could make. And it's terrific to see the AMA and to um, 
advocating for uh, deregulating uh, opioid addiction treatment. AMA has also taken positions that haven't been so helpful for the opioid crisis over over the years, but I, I do agree with them on this. They also had some recommendations for protecting patients with pain. And I'd like all of you to kind of weigh in on this in terms of, is that the right kind of measures to take or are we going a little bit too far? This is one of them is authorizing physicians to prescribe opioid medications to existing patients without an in-person evaluation and authorizing the prescription to be sent to the pharmacy uh, via the phone. Another is to waive during the emergency period the restriction on dose as well as quantity. And then finally, providing liability protection for physicians who prescribe controlled substances for their current patients. Is that going a little bit too far? It's, it's hard to say. You know, I think that um, what might be missing here would be some limitation. So, for example, if you have a patient on chronic opioids, and that patient suddenly can't access opioids, they're going to go and they're going to experience withdrawal, uh, a severe uh, reaction to uh, ceasing opioids. And that is an excruciating experience. So to, to come up with measures to make sure that people who are dependent on opioids um, are not, don't lose access and don't go into withdrawal, I think is reasonable. To make it easier though, for uh, a healthcare provider, a clinician, to start somebody on opioids who's never been on opioids uh, before, um, new patients um, without any kind of limitations on dose or duration, that would concern me. And I think this, again, falls into an area where we've got an experiment going on. And we may find at the end of this experiment that that temporary deregulation turned out to be harmful, that it, it resulted in, in more deaths or more people becoming addicted. So has oversight been compromised in expediting all the COVID-19 policy changes that uh, have surrounded opioid prescription practices here in our country? Beth Macy? I agree with what Andrew said. I don't have the, the medical knowledge or certainly the practice knowledge that he has in terms of methadone. Um, but I totally agree that uh, it worries me a bit if we start making it easier uh, to start new patients uh, without limitations on opioids because, you know, we saw where unfettered opioids got us to begin with. COVID-19, it would appear anyhow, it has really added to the burden of all of our behavioral health care providers here because we've got more that are pouring into and it's projected to really open up as the months go on. Meanwhile, um, you've, in a recent study, six out of 10 behavioral health providers said they can survive no more than three months in this pandemic. So there's a really concern, a big concern there about funding and our ongoing resources that we'll have available to uh, address this crisis, which is an ongoing crisis. Ryan, can you give us your thoughts on how we can get our leaders' attention on this to fund this properly? Well, there's an election coming up in November, and I would suggest that everybody who's listening to this call votes and educates themselves on where your policymakers, not just from the White House and Congress, but in your state legislature and 
uh, you know, uh, municipal offices, you know, stand on stand on this. Quite frankly, I think that uh, just in my experience, I think we have made some gains uh, as a movement in the last couple of years, but nowhere near where we need to be. Uh, and oftentimes it feels like, uh, you know, this community, the recovery community, the opioid crisis in general, uh, the addiction crisis in this country is lifted up only when it is politically expedient for certain policymakers. So uh, it is my hope that we have, uh, you know, we're, we're building a constituency of consequence that crosses party lines, but also uh, brings in, you know, people in recovery, people who use drugs, parents of loss, parents of people in recovery. Uh, you know, I think that the data shows there's somewhere, uh, you know, upwards of 23 million people living in long-term recovery in this country, uh, depending on, on what survey you're looking at, anywhere from 22 to 25 million people uh, who currently need help right now. If you do the math, that's probably about one in three American households who are directly impacted, right? So it, it is a very large constituency, um, but we have, there's a lot of education uh, that needs to take place. You know, you mentioned behavioral health care providers. One of the things um, that we have been very vocal about and fighting for is the uh, increase in a peer workforce, a peer trained workforce, uh, because I believe that if we are really going to have a shot at combating this massive crisis, right, not just opioids, but addiction, we're going to need a massive investment in a peer support workforce all across this country. I, I, you know, you bring up funding and I, I, I think I was frustrated about the lack of federal and state focus in terms of funding on these things before COVID. I mean, screaming from the rooftops, I wrote a lot about it in American Fix. Post COVID, it is, I mean, I can't even explain really how I feel and the, and the, the anger that I have. I, the, 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 I have people that are live on my block who are receiving SBA loans, right. In the hundreds of thousands of dollars, putting up billboards for, you know, not to knock on it, but you know, dog care businesses and whatnot, all great things. Like I'm happy they're getting it, but we can't even scratch the surface for what is a public health crisis in this country. And I believe if we're going to see real change, we have been talking about this. You know, the drug crisis in this country is not five years old. It, this didn't just pop up in 2015, 2014. The, the, this has been building up for decades, right? But it has been a political hot topic for at least the last seven, eight years and definitely in the last four years. It's time for people to take their anger to the ballot box and make it clear that we're just not going to be ignored. If we have another, and this is not a partisan statement, it, it, it is across the board, Congress, Senate, President, state legislatures, if we have the same people addressing an even bigger problem for the next four, six, eight years, we are in deep trouble. Dr. Kalatney, we've talked today quite a bit about innovations and changes to policy that have happened in a very short period of time here during COVID. What of those that have been instituted should be brought forward to address the opioid epidemic? I think um, what I'd like us to learn from the COVID crisis uh, that could be applied to the opioid crisis that would be really helpful 
would be the need for better public health surveillance. As I mentioned earlier, with COVID, every day we're hearing about the number of new cases. We're hearing about the number, number of hospitalizations, the number of deaths. Everybody agrees that it's really important to be tracking this in, information, and we have it at our fingertips. We are more than 20 years into the opioid addiction epidemic, and we still don't have a national estimate for the prevalence, the number of people in the United States suffering from opioid addiction or opioid use disorder. There's a, a, a number that's used from a, a SAMHSA survey, but that's actually not even a prevalence estimate. We don't, we don't know. And what we, where it's been studied and carefully looked at, for example, in the state of Massachusetts, where they looked at how many people in, the Massa- in Massachusetts might have opioid use disorder, they found an estimate much higher than any federal number. So the prevalence, the number of people with opioid use disorder, we don't know. We can only really speculate. The incidence rate, the number of new cases of opioid addiction that occur each year, we don't have a good estimate for for that either. With COVID, we're getting that every day. With HIV, we have prevalence, the number of people in the United States who are HIV positive. Every year, we get the number of new cases of HIV, the incidence rate. We still don't have that for the opioid crisis. Without prevalence and incidence data, it's very difficult to tackle the problem because we don't know where to direct it without knowing prevalence, particularly on a state and county level. How do we direct scarce resources to where they're most needed without having incidence data, without knowing the number of new cases? How can we tell whether or not efforts to prevent people from getting opioid addicted are working or not working, or where do we need to ramp them up? Is um, and so you know we're we're really in the dark ages, and it, it it's somewhat frustrating uh, to see how everybody gets it with an infectious disease outbreak. We've got to prevent people from getting this disease. We've got to treat people who have the disease. We've got to track the the data. With the opioid crisis, we're really still in the dark ages, despite being twenty five years into this problem. When in reality, the strategies are almost identical. We have to prevent more people from becoming opioid addicted, and we have to see that people who are opioid addicted get effective treatment so the disease doesn't kill them. Beth Macy shares her thoughts on activism in today's climate of social unrest. I think we need uh, less jail and less funding of police and more funding of treatment. And the one positive thing I'm seeing now Uh, I really think we should take advantage of the activism and the energy spawned by the the pandemic to make permanent changes uh, like Portugal did when they decriminalized drug use and then put the money that they were putting in policing, uh, not all of it, but a lot of it, uh, and put it uh, it, into treatment. Um, And I think that would go a long way towards uh, the reduction of mass incarceration and um, treating people Uh, We know what 80% of people in prisons and jails have a substance use disorder, treating them as people worthy of medical care. Uh, We know that people of color use use drugs at a lesser rate than whites do, but are still five times more likely to end up in jail. So I'm really hoping that we see uh, some activism continue along those lines. 
Diane, same question. I would say, you know, one thing that I, you know, maybe maybe we could actually do a, a whole podcast on this eventually, Greg, but I think we actually, you know, if we're going to end the addiction crisis in this country or curb it, we have to start looking at the uh, health equity issues uh, that we have for people who need uh, support. We have to look if where we're actually putting our federal dollars, where we're putting our state dollars. You know, one of the things that we're fighting for uh, is a is a similar carve out in the block grants. Uh, federal block grants have a twenty percent set aside for uh, addiction prevention. I wish that we were able to put something similar at twenty percent, the same federal investment that we put into prevention uh, into recovery support services. We need to start looking at the long game, um, you know, and 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 not necessarily just treat this kind of uh, in the old only in the treatment setting. Uh, I'll, I'll just make a call out because it was, it, it came out this morning. You know, we have a lot of education, a lot of work, a lot of activism, a lot of advocacy, a lot of policy change that needs to be made state by state. Just in the state of New Hampshire, uh, it was revealed this morning that uh, I believe it was a half a million dollars of their opioid grant dollars uh, that are supposed to be to end the opioid crisis in their, con- in their country, or I'm sorry, in their state. Uh, went towards law enforcement services, services that was actually going out, finding opioid users and putting them in jail. Like we have to take this out of the public safety side and put it into the public health side. Those things are still very, very real in this country. We are still criminalizing addiction all over the place. So my one hope, you know, particularly coming out of COVID, and I believe when we come out of COVID, we'll probably be coming out of an election is we'll just, we will stop saying that we are, you know, going to deal with this as a public health crisis and actually deal with it as a public health crisis. You know, I I think that uh, there's a lot we don't know, unfortunately, about how, uh, about how COVID is impacting uh, the the opioid crisis. but as we've heard from from Ryan and, and Beth, um, lots of reason to believe that it's it's making the the crisis worse. Um, I like the I think people get this, but I think an important message is that for people suffering from opioid use disorder, um, the the fact that we have this other epidemic doesn't mean that they're going to just recover. And I, I think that you know for people who don't understand addiction like the the first responder who said you know i'm uh in the context of covid i'm not going to rescue someone with naloxone if they they overdose for people who see addiction as uh, bad behavior or people behaving badly um uh enjoying drugs for for fun or or choosing this this uh lifestyle um uh for folks who really just don't don't get it um, I, I just wish that they could understand uh, addiction as a disease the same way that um, they understand COVID as a disease, and that the strategies for responding to the to an addiction epidemic are not that different from the strategies for responding to an infectious disease outbreak. Okay, I think we've got a couple of questions from uh, from some of the folks in our audience here. Let's talk about the pandemic pop-up harm reduction. 
in high-risk areas. Um, so that seems to be an innovation in Ohio. Has that caught on in other areas of the country? Can I, I'll, I'll answer that. It, it, it kind of underground in certain pockets around the country, it hit, has caught on, um, but not enough. And when I say certain pockets, I mean, I could probably list off maybe 10 or 12 pandemic pop-ups uh, that I've heard of with, with firsthand experience. But we have to start, uh, we need to bring harm reduction into this conversation more, right? Like that's what I, kind of what I'm screaming from the rooftops, right? We, we, we deal with this in silos. We deal with treatment. We deal with prevention. We deal with recovery. We deal with um, uh, uh, law enforcement and interdiction. Um, and then you kind of have like harm reduction over here. And harm reduction still has a tremendous amount of stigma to it, right? There's, there are states in this country where fentanyl test strips are still not allowed. I mean, okay, like you, like it, it's, 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 it, it still has a tremendous stigma of its own on it. But people will not get into recovery, maintain recovery, have access to buprenorphine or effective treatment strategies if they are dead. How do we keep them alive? We keep them alive by offering them harm reduction techniques while they are still using, right? I am someone who would have benefited from clean syringe services, something like a safe injection site or overdose prevention services, which I know an overdose prevention site, which I know is highly controversial. But the fact of the matter was that I entered recovery with a very bad case of hepatitis C that cost Medicaid probably close to $100,000 to treat as a result of not having access to clean, clean syringe services when I was intravenously injecting heroin uh, in the state of Florida. I probably would have found my way to treatment much sooner and not have experienced the overdose episodes that I had. And yet here I am five years later, clean of hepatitis C, I'm a healthy person, but those are the types of services I would have benefited from um, and many people around this country, uh, but they're, sadly, it's just a stigma. I mean, harm reduction is stigmatized, like, up to here. So we've got, I, I think we've got time for one more question here. Uh, this one's just a little bit controversial. As a medical prescriber of MAT, I strongly resent the phrase Byzantine restrictions from Beth Macy. <laughs> uh, prior to COVID-19, it was very hard to separate patient scams from valid requests. So many times have I been duped into giving uh, a patient buprenorphine only to find the main goal was to sell, share, give away their meds. The prescriber then gets blamed from the DEA and the state medical board. A very valid concern. Beth, you want to start us off and then Dr. Kolodny? I'd like you to weigh in. Sure. I'll have to look up Byzantine, make sure I, 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 worded, I used that correctly. What I'm talking about is just uh, so many restrictions. Um, I've also seen uh, the cash-only clinics and sort of the havoc that those have wreaked as well. Um, when uh, the person says he's been duped into giving buprenorphine that then gets sold, uh, the other side of that is that there are people who need it, so they yes. must be doing heroin and injecting uh, themselves with needles. And so that points to an overall dearth of people who are wavered to prescribe uh, MAT. I think the last time I checked, it was 5 to 6% of all physicians. And we know that the younger 
uh, group, a lot of residents uh, are becoming uh, wavered, and that's great. Um, we know when France did away with the waiver, um, there's a, there's now a big uh, push to do away with it. It's called X the X waiver. Like France did, uh, they had an 89% decrease in their overdose deaths. So, uh, uh, sorry if I used the wrong word, but I still think the reason that is is because there's such a shortage of uh, access for this medication that's life-saving. Dr. Kaladny, I'd like you to close this out. Yeah, no, nobody likes to be regulated, but doctors uh, or clinicians who prescribe controlled drugs, we should be regulated. We should be regulated by our state medical boards and by the DEA to keep, because there is a public safety factor there. The problem with buprenorphine is that we don't have the regular regulations for scheduled drugs. We have excessive regulations that don't exist. For example, a doctor can prescribe as much OxyContin as they want to as many patients as they want, and they don't have to take any special training. All they need is their DEA registration. But to treat opioid addiction with buprenorphine, buprenorphine being a much safer drug than oxycodone or hydrocodone, that same healthcare provider has to take a special training program and apply to the federal government, federal government and then there's a cap on the number of patients that they can treat. And, and that's a problem. If we really want to see overdose deaths start to come down rapidly, in the United States, it has to be easier for somebody who's opioid addicted to access a clinician who can treat their opioid addiction with a drug like buprenorphine than it is for that individual to access heroin, fentanyl, or prescription opioids. When we make it much easier for people to access treatment, I do think we'll see, as Beth Macy pointed out, like in France, a dramatic decline in, in overdose deaths, a 79% drop in, in a six-year period as doctors began to prescribe more. So I, I do hope that the temporary deregulation that we've made in buprenorphine treatment during this uh, pandemic, um, that they're not temporary and that we go even further in expanding access to buprenorphine treatment. So what have we learned? We learned COVID-19 has been particularly detrimental for those struggling with opioid use disorder, with one study projecting 75,000 additional deaths from overdose and suicide due to the pandemic. We learned that under the right circumstances, policymakers can move swiftly to modify outdated guidelines in COVID-19, eliminating things such as face-to-face -face appointments required for initiating telemedicine, and in stating 14 or even 28-day take-home prescription for methadone and suboxone. We also learned how essential real-time data is in fighting COVID-19. In fact, just this week, a collaboration of top scientists at institutions around the country released a new online risk assessment map that allows people to check the state or the county where they live to see a COVID-19 risk rating of either green, yellow, orange, or red. Meanwhile, the National Institute on Drug Addiction will release its 2019 drug overdose data in early 2021, a lag time of about 24 months. The consequences of not having real-time data for any public health crisis is lethal. Isn't it time to bring real-time data into the fight for lives in the opioid crisis? My name is Greg McNeil. 
I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you.